everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Recovery Jam. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, it's really good to be here tonight. Um, and we're talking about uh, one of my favorite steps. And I think it's one, you know, um, in the big book, step six is like, it's given like maybe a paragraph, right? It's real short. And and so um, I think there's been, you know, some people have interpreted it to mean that there's not a lot to do in regards to step six, or it's easy. It's an easy step. And, um, you know, I like the AA 12 and 12, especially for this step, because, well, there's, there's a lot more than just a paragraph um, on it. And, you know, <clears throat> the 12 and 12 was written, it was written after the big book. And I think and my, my belief, my opinion is that perhaps it was, you know, um, realized that we needed to give step six a little bit more space than just a paragraph because there was, an, there was a lot to consider and a lot to do based around um, that step. And I think, you know, step six is also, it's the, um, it's the transformation. It's a transformative step. It's, um, you know, and this whole program, this entire 12 step process is to have, you know, a spiritual awakening, a transformation, right? And so step six really is a big change step. It's where we take our defects and we, and we find ourselves entirely ready to have God remove them, not entirely ready to remove them ourselves, right? Um, but to have God remove them. So step six um, is all about change and growth and it's allowing God to change us and grow us. So um, we're gonna dig right into the 12 and 12 and then we're gonna start a little bit in the big book. You know, it's says step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects. And in the big book, page 76, it says, if we can answer to our satisfaction Answer what? Answer the question if our inventory was thorough, if the work was thorough. And if we can answer to our satisfaction that it was thorough, that our stones were properly put in place, that we didn't skimp on the cement put into the foundation, we could say, yes, yes, those things are true. Then we look at step six and, and we emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable. Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. So step six emphasizes willingness. And this is all about being willing. And willingness, you know, um, you hear sometimes about this willingness thing that it's somehow like, like this magic thing, you know, that um, I'll just, I don't know, I'm not willing and let me just sort of uh, hope that I get willing, pray that I get well. And, um, you know, but willingness there, it really does have um, two essential components. It's not just this, you know, I think that about my own experience with willingness and if I look at it closely, it's it's composed of two important things. One is desperation. You gotta have, you know, people who are desperate tend to be more willing. 
Um, but it also, you need hope. You need to have both desperation and hope. And, you know, willingness for me means taking action. Like that's what it means to be willing. Actions that I might not like, or I may not understand, right? That's what it means to be willing to not just put it through, you know, the test of, do I understand this and do I like this, right? But am I willing to do this? And, you know, and for me, it's generally my willingness starts when everything else has failed. I'm willing to do other things when the things that I like and the things that make sense and the things that are comfortable don't work, right? Um, and, you know, I would say that it always came down to being out of options. When I ran out of my own options, my own choices, then I became willing for other suggestions made. And I, you know, in the past, I would say, you know, and it's funny, I had these in my notes here that I never let go of anything that is still enjoyable and easily managed. And, and I actually, when I wrote, when I wrote that, I think that was true then. And as I'm reading it now, I think maybe not so much anymore. I think, um, I, I have become more willing over time to even let things go. If I, you know, if they're not bringing me the greatest satisfaction, if they're not bringing me the greatest, you know, peace. But it used to be that it required like crushing pain and humiliation. And I'm finding that as my relationship with God is strengthening over time, I'm willing before that point. I don't need to have my face ground in the dirt to be willing to see things from a different angle. I think that is, you know, we're told that um, that we grow spiritually. And for me, I think that's, that's one of the areas that I've grown spiritually. Um, you know, it used to have to reach a point of tremendous discomfort and frustration. And sometimes it still does, right? I have to be frustrated. Um, and what I learned about myself is I am extremely stubborn. I'm a very stubborn person with an incredibly high threshold for pain. So I would hang on to what I liked, to my way, even though it hurt, even though it was painful. And, you know, and I needed some of that. So I'm willing when I'm desperate, but desperation alone is not enough. Just being desperate is not enough to make people willing, right? The other essential component is hope. You gotta have hope, which, you know, um, what gives us hope? What gives people hope? I think that's the purpose of a meeting, right? To be a, a place of hope, to, to be a spot where we can see others who are experiencing successful lives and who were once, you know, as screwed up as we were. You know, that, that's what always gave me hope. Um, and it's why we're told to share our stories, our stories of hope our stories of transformation, um, you know, because what does it do? It gives hope to the still sick and suffering. And, and I have to say, you know, um, my own recovery, some of the things that I thought I would never be able to get over to ever survive, I have. And God has done the, you know, what seemingly was the impossible. And so my own experience gives me hope for other areas of my life. 
when I feel that something is difficult in my workplace or in my family or, or in the world, I only need to look back at some other things that I once thought were hopeless. That really turned out not to be after all. And so our own experiences can give us hope about the difficulties that we have. Um, you know, and so what happened for me was that there were recovered people who told me about the actions that they took. And, um, and that gave me hope. And that's been true of all of the steps, you know, not just this step six, where I'm going to be willing to have my defects removed. But, you know, it seems like a no brainer that we should be willing to have our defects removed, right? And it seems like, of course, I want them removed. Um, and it doesn't even sound like it's going to be doing much anyway. Like it's not going to be so hard and it's going to be really easy. I want them removed. I'll, I'm willing to have them removed. Okay, great. They'll be removed. And, you know, and in fact, because the big book just gives it a paragraph, right? So I think, well, it's only a paragraph. It should be easy. And, you know, and then I, then I thought, yeah, well, uh, why wouldn't I want them removed? Of course I want them removed. After all, I found out that they're, causing me to live an unsatisfying life. That's what I found that in my inventory, that they, they, my defects kept me resentful, they kept me filled with fear, and, you know, and, and in turn, they kept me going back to the food, right? But when I look closely, I'm not so sure that what I wanted was the defect removed. I think mostly I wanted the consequences associated with the defect removed. I wanted the symptom removed, but not the root, not the real cause. And step six, you know, for a moment, I'm gonna jump in the OA 12 and 12, which we don't often look at, but it's got some really good stuff in step six. And in the OA 12 and 12 on page 47, it says, we are powerless over each of our defects of character, just as we are powerless over the food right? We are powerless over the food. I am powerless over the removal of my defects. Our character defects need to be removed by a power greater than ourselves, and we cannot do it alone. Does this mean we shouldn't try to change our behavior until our higher power changes us? Should we continue being dishonest, intolerant, and all the rest? Of course not, it says. Being entirely ready means that we have firmly turned our backs on the old self-destructive behaviors and make every effort to live by the principles embodied in the 12 steps, trying to practice the new thinking and behaviors to the best of our ability shows our true willingness to change. And then in step six in the AA 12 and 12, now on page 67, it says, going to talk about self-righteous anger, that it can also be enjoyable. In a perverse way, we can actually take satisfaction from the fact that many people annoy us. Can you imagine that that's satisfying for me, that people are annoying? I get satisfaction from that. For it brings a comfortable feeling of superiority. That's what gives me satisfaction, thinking that I'm above other people. And it goes on to say that gossip barbed with our anger, a polite form of murder by character assassination has its satisfactions for us too. Here, we are not trying to help those we criticize. 
we're trying to proclaim our own righteousness. So, I mean, it really spells it out that gossip is, is deadly, that it's a polite way of killing somebody by assassinating their character, by destroying their character. And, you know, I did discover that I kind of enjoy my resentment sometimes. I feel like oddly powerful in my righteous indignation. It feels powerful. And how many times, you know, would someone do something that was so clearly wrong? Someone did something and I found it wrong. And then I could retell what they did to me over and over and over again, or what they did in general. And in fact, I would get a lot out of a minor slight, like something someone did that was minor. I could really like feed myself on it, like just discuss it over and over again. And, and if I was right, oh my gosh, if I was right, you know, then I could retell it even more. And, and, and for me, it would show up in my life in gossip, right? We're talking about gossip and complaining. And, you know, I think about if I like to kind of compare it to eating, right? Gossip to eating, because it starts off harmless. That's how it was with me, my disease. The lie that I would sort of believe in my mind was it's not a big deal, right? No big deal. And, you know, I would say like complaining and gossip, it's like eating potato chips for me. It feels very savory. It feels very tasty. I have a couple of them, you know, um, I, I say a couple little things about somebody and then it goes on endlessly the same way that I would eat potato chips. Once I started talking about someone to someone else, then they would add, then I would add, then they would add, then I would add, and it would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And when I was done, I felt greasy and sick, just like when I binge on potato chips. It's the same, sort of the same experience for me. Um, and so step six meant, okay, I'm willing to let go of this pastime, the pastime of ripping other people apart. It's a horrible pastime. And, and I'm willing to let go of it as a demonstration of my willingness to have God remove the defect of resentment. I know that I can't remove the resentment myself, but I can certainly stop feeding it right? It's like, I don't have to bring fire. That idea about venting, I used to think also that complaining, well, I'm just venting. I just need to vent, right? And if you think about what happens when you vent, you know, like a fire, it means you open it up and invite more oxygen in. And what happens to that fire is it grows, it gets bigger and bigger. So venting for someone like me is not it is not in my best interest. It's deadly. It burns my resentments. It burns me up. It keeps them alive. You know, and, and they say like, step six is the work of the lifetime. It's the, it's the revisited step. Yes, I'm willing. But every time that I do a 10 step, it's because that there was aspects 
of my defects that got stirred up again. And I am to look at them again and examine them more closely. So it's the work of a lifetime. I practice the behaviors of a person who is free of this defect as best I can, right? We, we turn our backs on our old behavior. And I think about it like this. Um, my, my step six is kind of like my abstinent behavior plan. Just like in step one, when I admitted I was powerless over food. By the way, I got a food plan. And I did everything within my own human power, knowing that I was powerless, but I did everything in my own human power to live in agreement with that food plan. You know, I went to the store and I bought the vegetables, right? I, I got the scale, I washed them, I chopped them. I did everything that I possibly can. Um, and it was a demonstration for me that I was willing to have God remove it. You know, I, I, and I would say it's the same thing with my defects. I have to prepare myself as though I'm not going to engage in my defects anymore. Um, and they don't get removed. My defects don't get removed so long as I'm continually practicing them, in my experience. If I keep practicing them, I'm demonstrating to God, I don't want them removed. In fact, let me still hang on to them just a little bit more. Um, you know, if I want resentment to be removed, then I have to stop gossiping and I have to stop complaining. And I needed like a behavior plan is what it was. What is it going to look like when I'm in a situation where the bag of potato chips of gossip and complaining has entered the room? What am I going to eat instead? What am I going to feed myself spiritually instead? And that's really what I had to look at. And it sounds like almost crazy that I would have to put it down very clearly on paper, but I did. I actually needed for myself a list of things that I was going to talk about instead when a particular colleague would bring up a shared person or a situation that she knew that I didn't like, right? And I didn't want to stay attached there. So I actually had almost like a little cheat sheet for myself. What am I going to say instead? What am I going to do instead? And that I would think was like my, my abstinent behavior plan. And I needed to do everything within the best of my ability to live in agreement with that. Do I fall short? Absolutely. Do I engage in gossip at times? Yes, I haven't reached perfection yet. But it comes up pretty quickly. I'm, I'm realizing it much more quickly. And I also think part of my abstinent behavior plan is I look to surround myself with people who also want to grow spiritually, who also are willing to catch themselves, right? In the midst of something that wasn't appropriate to talk about. I mean, it happened tonight. It was seemingly harmless and it went into a different direction. And gratefully, we're both willing to grow along spiritual lines. And so it was pointed out. We pointed it out to one another. We talked about something spiritual and, and redirected our conversation and moved on. That to me is my step six demonstration so that I can have God remove the defect of that kind of behavior, right? I don't want to have it. Um, you know, and so what do I do when someone says something, you know, let's say 
um, putting someone down, especially if someone I would have normally trashed. Um, I try to find something positive to talk about, you know? Um, and, you know, one of the things that I do in my workplace, which I find really effective is um, I taught, I ask people questions about their kids. Like if you are sitting next to someone and they're starting to gossip with you or complain about something with you, ask them about their grandchildren. Ask them about, you know, something of a positive nature that you know that they would rather talk about. And that for me is one of the ways that I can invite when I say like, God is either everything or nothing. What's my choice to be? I believe that when I take those actions, I'm demonstrating that I believe God is everything, that I'm inviting God into the room. I think God wants us to talk about things that are uplifting and positive, that make people feel good. Um, and we can gently redirect the conversation. And you know, what I also found out is if I'm unable to do that, I can suddenly get too busy to be in that person's company. And I've done that. And I've said, oh my goodness, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to go. I have something I have to do. And generally it is, you know what it is I have to do? I have to go to God and I have to pray. I have to ask for help, right? If I can't remove myself, myself, I can always go to God with this because that, remember, that is the only way our defects get removed. And that's the demonstration of my willingness. You know, if there's something, um, on social media, I think social media is a really dangerous place for people like me who, you know, can feed off of our resentments. Um, you know, I've learned that um, there are people I love who I don't look. I, you know, I hide their posts from me. I just, I can just easily do that so that I don't get angry and I don't get judgmental. And, um, and I don't have to go there, right? Those are the actions that I can take. Um, I've also made, you know, for myself, one of my abstinent behavior plans, as far as my defects, is to limit the time I spend on social media. That I have to, that I have to have a timer on my, on my, on my, on my phone. Almost, you know, like I have to weigh and measure my food. I have to weigh and measure my my social media because it's dangerous area for someone like me. Um, you know, even though I'm willing to have these defects removed, I am powerless to the actual removal of them. I cannot make myself no longer feel something. I can't say, okay, I'm done feeling that. I will no longer feel that way. Um, I'm not able to stop a feeling. I do not have that power. So what do I do then? What do we do when we, it seems like we're a slave to our human feelings? And, you know, I think also, um, I ran two ways with, with feelings. My, my whole life experience was, I had two ways that I approached feelings. One was um, complete denial. I would say I was like a sleeping giant. I felt like nothing a lot of the times. I was in a, in a 
coma numb induced state of fullness. The food was a really great way to kind of tap down feelings. And so I denied, 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 denied until it was so overwhelming, until it was like all consuming. I had two modes, denial or obsession. So something would reach a point and I could no longer deny that it bothered me. And then it owned me. Then it was everything. And I had no ability to live in the middle ground. I just could not seem to live in that balanced place in between. And um, for me, that's where, you know, in early abstinence and recovery, I found my feelings overwhelming because I did not have the food to shut them down. And so I felt everything in the most heightened degree. And thank God for God, because that's where I go. When even today, when I have a feeling that feels too heavy for me, that's where I go to God. And I say, God, this feels really heavy for me. I want your, I want your comfort and direction. You know, and then I, you know, I've been told I can put a hand on my heart. I can take a deep breath. I can feel God's presence. I can ask God's presence. I can, I can take my arms. I can wrap my arms around myself. I can ask God to help me feel the strength of his love and direction right in my own breath and in my own arms. And I can invite God's presence in. And step seven is really where this comes in, full throttle. I, it says, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, right? Not that my emotions are a shortcoming, but if it's a resentment or it's an overwhelming fear, it is a shortcoming. And step seven emphasizes humility. And this is something um, that I fight against. Humility does not come easy. It seems to go against my very nature. My need for power, my need for self-importance. And true humility is understanding my strengths and weaknesses. And in this case, I'm looking closely at my defects. That's what step seven is. The things that are keeping me locked off from a higher power. And I look at them closely because I need these things to be removed so that I can get a better connection with God, so that I can feel like I am perfectly connected with power. And, you know, and I saw in my inventory that my defects were keeping my resentments alive. And that always drove me back to the food. Some people, you know, they say, people call them their triggers. Oh, this triggers me. This is my trigger. This triggers me. Um, and, you know, I loved when I heard, um, what do you do, you know, if someone is, is triggering you? Well, you're the one who's holding it. Remove the trigger. Remove the trigger. Um, you know, I, I found out that I need the defects removed. And then I found out that I cannot do it on my own. I can't remove the triggers on my own. And that's why I need humility even more. And AA 12 and 12 says, indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of the steps. All of the steps are based upon humility for without some degree of humility, no alcoholic or no compulsive overeater 
could stay sober or abstinent at all, right? Remember powerless. So humility means I can't do it on my own. I need you, God. Nearly um, all AAs have found too that unless they develop a much more of this precious quality, then they may be required just for sobriety. So I need more than just God to keep me abstinent. I need more humility than just abstinence. Abstinence alone, by the way, abstinence alone is not recovery. It's not enough. It's not everything. And they still haven't had much chance of becoming truly happy. Without it, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity, be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking to be truly happy. That's the promises of the steps. To live in happiness, to have purposeful lives, useful and purposeful, to be able to have faith in times of adversity. That's what it means to have recovery that we could meet any emergency. And what that means is that no longer will I say, well, I lost my abstinence because my mom got sick or I lost my abstinence because my job is really getting to me, right? Because that's not enough. I need to have enough so that I can live with purpose and peace in adversity. You know, step one for me was where I really began to have a real relationship with humility. I saw I could not remove my desire to eat compulsively. I knew that I was hopelessly beaten by the food, right? We know that in step one. And that, like I said before, you know, I couldn't keep myself abstinent on my own power, but I did, I actually had to be the one to go to the grocery store and buy the healthy food, right? Like, you know, that was part of my own action. And thankfully, I had wonderful fellows and sponsors who gave me support and assistance while I took those actions, which is why I really do believe that it would be very easy to tell somebody, get abstinent and call me when you're abstinent. That would be easy. What's harder is to accompany someone to the grocery store, whether it's via FaceTime or actually in person. You know, I had sponsors who actually prepared food for me, who actually helped me, who made me abstinent meals, who told me where to go, what to get, how to prepare it. They held my hand and walked me through it. And they didn't say, go get abstinent and call me when you're ready to do the work. And if you're able to do that on your own power, great for you, but not everybody can. And I don't think that that means that a person isn't willing. It means that they're without power and they need help. And that's, you know, and that's the purpose of those of us who have had a spiritual awakening, we bring hope. We tell those people, you can, you can do this with God's help. And here's how, here's how. 
I'll help put your hand in God's hand. You know, um, and it's the same thing with my defects. You know, um, I found that I had to be willing to have them removed by practicing a new way of living. And I, you know, and what I found was very helpful for me was that I looked at my defects and on one side of the page, I put down on paper specifically how they were looking in my life. What was I doing to keep those defects alive? What were the actions I was taking when I was living in the grip of my defects? And then I took that piece of paper and I folded it in half and on the other side I wrote, what would it look like if I did not live that way any longer? What would it look like if I didn't do that? If I didn't gossip with the colleague, what would a person in my workplace look like who didn't do that? What would that person do? And I started writing those down and those became my script. That became my abstinent plan. And I did it in lots of areas. I had to do it in the area of, you know, of dishonesty. I had some major dishonesty that I would do surrounding my workplace. And I had to say, okay, what would it look like if I wasn't dishonest? What would I do? Well, I would accept responsibility for my lack of perfection and I would own it. Okay, I fell short on this part, but I'm not gonna try to hide it. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be upfront and honest and I'll, and, and I'll deal with the consequences of my own perhaps imperfection in my workplace, but I won't hide it with a lie. I will not hide it with a lie. I'll take ownership for my part. You know, another thing that I had to do was um, I really worshiped the opinions of other people. And I, um, one of my great, you know, defects was um, I did not take into consideration the feelings of my kids sometimes. I did things, I had them do things because it made me look good, because it was important for me. It was, you know, it was, it was what I thought that it looked that looking right was more important than doing right. And, you know, and so I would make these huge elaborate parties for my kids who hate big elaborate parties. And I would invite every kid in their class, whether they liked the kid or not, whether the kid was mean to them or not, whether I liked the mom or not, but because I wanted to look good and I wanted to put on a big show. So I didn't just do like the basic party. I had to like make it over the top um, because I, I was like addicted. The, the drug was the praise and the accolades. It made me feel really good. And so that I did everything. I didn't respect my kids' preferences. And so what does it look like today? Well, it looks like you respect other people's ways and that my children are not, they're not an accessory. They're not my pocketbook and they're not my shoes, right? They're not, their purpose in life is not to make me look good, make me look stylish, make me look appealing to other people. It's to be their own people. It's to be their own, with their own unique ways. And, you know, my own experience was um, my daughter made a wedding that was like, it was beautiful. It was, I showed up. I just, I was, it was not a huge elaborate event. And part of me for a moment was like, huh, I didn't get to plan my daughter's wedding. I didn't get, and it's like, right. That's right, I didn't. That's right, I didn't. And my family members, 
you know, I had to let go of the thought um, that they would have an opinion about it because, you know, um, because my, you know, my daughter married, married another woman and I was afraid that my family members would think that I didn't make her a party because I had a feeling about that. And so I was so wrapped up in what I thought people were thinking. Um, and that's not my business. It's not my business to worry what anyone else is thinking. That's, that goes in the list as Janet says is not my business. Not my business what anyone else is thinking. My business is to respect my daughter and her preferences. And whether they think I agree with my daughter or don't agree with my daughter's life choices, I know the truth. My daughter knows the truth and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. And so I really did practice this. I went, you know, I had to do a couple of 10 steps. That's the truth. But I went and I was happy and I was joyous and I was, you know, able to celebrate with her the way that she wanted it. It was a very small, very private way. Um, and I realized, you know, I cooperated with God here that I, my defect I wanted my defect of being overly concerned about other people's opinions of me to be removed. And so I could practice what would that look like if I lived that way. Um, you know, in the AA 12 and 12 on page 74, it says, until now our lives had been largely devoted to running from pain and problems. We fled from them as from a plague. We never wanted to deal with the fact of suffering escape via the bottle was always our solution. And so a big part of step seven for me is the understanding that I can only increase and prolong my pain in trying to avoid any discomfort. When I base my life around the principle that I must avoid discomfort at all costs, regardless of what I need to manipulate to avoid my discomfort, I am actually increasing my own level of discomforting. You know, and so today I don't seek discomfort. It's not like I look and scan the horizon and saying, oh, how can I be uncomfortable? But I don't waste too much time and energy looking to avoid it either. You know, and oftentimes what I found is that my discomfort, it's a signal. It's letting me know, it's a message telling me that it's either time to let go of an outcome and an expectation. And that's why I'm uncomfortable because I had an outcome in mind. I had an expectation in mind. And I've learned that, you know, I can feel sad and I can feel disappointed, right? Sad and disappointed is not a defect. It's an emotion. And even the most intense feelings, they eventually pass and they fade so long as I actually feel them and experience them. So long as I trust God, that I trust God with my feelings. And this is where I lean into my higher power and I rely on the support available. You know, um, when I'm overcome by shame, when I've been overcome by guilt, I can say to myself, ooh, this is the stirrings of my conscience. When I say, oh, I feel guilty. Well, you know, God gave me a conscience and it's a gentle reminder. Sometimes my guilt is the gentle reminder to stay on course, to avoid that action, right? 
it's like the the it's sort of like when Waze tells you, you know, turn here, go here. It's the redirection that this is not a good path for me to go down. And page 76 says, living upon a basis of unsatisfied demand, we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. So how do I prolong my own misery? By focusing on how my demands are not being met and how things are not going my way. And, you know, I'm learning more and more today that I have more peace when I can make a request, an honest request. I'm allowed to have a request, but not a demand, right? I can say, I would like this. This would be, you know, I would, I wish that it could be this way or I'd like it to be this way, but not to insist with my feet, you know, dug in, my heels dug in and insist that things go my way. And you know, what I found is that if I'm really bothered by things not going my way, um, I ask God to help me just not have a way, right? If I don't, if I find that things are not going my way, I ask God to remove me having a way. I don't need to have a way about everything, right? Um, and I don't feel as resentful, you know, when, when people don't do what I want them to do, when I stop wanting so much, right? I used to have a want list, this laundry list of wants that I want my kids to do this. I want my husband to do this. I want my mother-in-law to do this. I want my workplace to do this. I want my class to do this. Want, 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 want. And when I stop wanting so much, I'm happier. I feel, you know, and does it sound like I have no standards? You know, no expectations, no standards. I don't ever ask anybody to do anything. Um, maybe a little bit to an outside person. They might say, you don't have any standards. You have not, no, nothing that you, you know, insist that your kids do or nothing that your husband do or nothing that your job should do. and you know, I don't know, maybe to normal people, but, um, you know, others meeting my demands comes with too great a price for me. That's what I found out. You know, I say in step one, you know, I've discussed about being the distinct entity where it comes to food, where it comes to, you know, weighing and measuring, where it comes to, you know, refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors. Well, it's sort of the same thing. I'm a distinct entity when it comes from refraining from having a demand list, a want list. I'm not like other people. Other people can have a huge list of what they expect their kids to do. And I found for me, in order for me to live in peace and happiness and contentment, it's easier for me not to have such a crazy long list of demands because it comes with too great a price. And you know, I found out that my needs and demands have been insatiable. That's what got me here. That I had needs and demands that no human could ever fulfill. I couldn't get them filled. I couldn't eat enough. I couldn't get enough. Nothing was ever enough for me. And they're just too great to satisfy. And letting go and relying on God is really what humility is. So step one is a prayer. That's what step, I'm sorry, step seven is a prayer. 
That's really what it is. It's a request. It's a request that I make of God and it's not a demand. I don't tell God, take this away from me right now, right? I make a request. And it's like all the prayers that seem most heartfelt for me. I personalize my prayers so that they're authentic requests. When I ask God to remove my defects, I name the defect. I say the thing that I'm struggling with. And I add what I request to be replaced with. I request it be replaced with. I don't demand that it be replaced with because I don't really know what's in my own best interest. And I think a really great way of ending is by reading the closing paragraph in, of step seven, and it's in the OA 12 and 12. And it says this in the OA 12 and 12 on page 56, it says, repeated practice of step seven enables us to form a working partnership with our higher power. So here we, we begin to get a working partnership. Can you imagine I get to partner with God, a working partnership through which we are relieved of the defects that have blocked our effectiveness in the world. So my partnership with God is, I ask God, help me be effective in the world. Help me, help me be, you know, um, a vehicle for good. Help me be your agent, that you're the principal. I want to be your agent. And, and so I want the things that are in the way of me being effective. And as we gain new humility and even greater freedom from our character defects, God's power flows more surely and freely through us, bringing healing to others as well as ourselves, right? So when I'm in working partnership with God, I'm not the only one that's getting better, but I'm a partner. And so I must be useful in helping other people and drawing to us all the things we once fought so hard to attain. Self-esteem, a feeling of usefulness, joy, strength, to surmount difficulties, fellowship and love. Our simple prayers humbly spoken are answered in wonderful ways as we open our lives to God's transforming power. And we find that once again, God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And with that, I will pass.